0: No matter what industry you work in, with time you find people you look up to, people who have led by example and have had an impact on their chosen field and will be leaving a significant legacy for future generations. The wool industry has produced countless people like this over 200 years. For some reason, it fosters a great sense of individuality and personality and you mix this with the vast areas and different climates that wool has grown in you end up with quite a kaleidoscope of personalities from the wool industry. It certainly has created more than its fair share of colourful characters over the years. Welcome to The Yarn, the number one wool industry podcast. I'm Marius Cumming. So one of the more self-effacing leaders of the wool industry is Jeff Power from South Australia, former President of Wool Producers Australia and Livestock SA, He was awarded an inaugural Wool Industry Medal in 2017 for his long dedication to industry advocacy and was a driving force behind the highly successful and ongoing wild dog control measures at a national, state and local level. It was a great pleasure to recently catch up with Jeff Power who told me of his somewhat unconventional entry into the wool industry.
1: I was born in Melbourne and educated in Melbourne. But I left Melbourne um, when I left school, I wanted to go jackarooing, but my parents being uh, Melbourneites, they uh, weren't that familiar with the bush. So I, uh, the compromise was I, I, I joined a stock and station agent, which I did for a couple of years, and then I did a, an in-house engineering course in Toowoomba in Queensland with, uh, with Southern Cross Machinery, and uh, I learnt uh, water hydraulics. I was involved in irrigation, pumping, Industry for some time, and um, in the meantime, I was transferred to South Australia and into the north of the state, which I guess I've been ever since. I did leave Southern Cross; it was a great company to work for. Loved my work, and our oldest daughter uh, she contracted what they call Friedrich's ataxia, which is a, a form of muscular dystrophy, and we had to spend more time with her. So. Yeah, in the meantime we'd started buying a bit of land and then I got involved in the wool industry, in the shearing industry. And, um, uh, you know, the industry's been so good to us. You know, I've always believed that should, you should put back into something that's been good for you. And uh, we wouldn't be here today only for the shearing industry and, and the wool industry. So I feel I feel very blessed to be, have been part of that. And, uh, yeah, it's all about giving back.
0: So through your time as President of Wool Producers Australia, one of your very strong focuses was protecting the national flock from wild dogs. Um, It's had a phenomenal effect, but tell us a bit about your own personal experience through
1: that and where we sit now today. Yeah, well as President of uh, Wool Producers Australia I had the opportunity to really traverse the nation. And I was, I was just alarmed that, uh, for argument's sake, Queensland used to have over 20 million sheep, and at the time I think they were back to about one and a half million. WA, uh, there were only a couple of hundred thousand sheep left in WA in, in the pastoral areas, and they were on the Nullarbor Plain. Some of those areas north of, in the northwest of Western Australia, used to have huge flocks of sheep, and uh, there were no sheep left. And it was, it was, all, down to, um, it was all down to wild dogs. So, you know, we had to do something about that. And uh, I really valued the pastoral industry in the West Darling, of New South Wales and South Australia, and I could see that they were going the same way. So wool producers uh, crafted what we call the National Wild Dog Action Plan. That plan was uh, developed to build capacity to uh, eradicate and fight wild dogs and give pastorals to be able to have their choice of um, enterprise back again.
0: And part of that, uh, obviously, was trapping and baiting, but the fencing has been uh, one of the great untold stories of the industry, I suppose, in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, Tell us a bit about the enormous effort that's gone into fencing.
1: Yeah, look, um, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you you go back to when um, the first settlers were there, they had to fence themselves in. So we've gone back to we've gone back to where we were even I don't like going backwards in life but in this case we, we had to go back and we had to we had to do something otherwise we were going to lose an industry. So in Queensland uh, cluster fencing has been huge. You know there there are properties now that couldn't run sheep that are, are starting to run sheep again and and it's a lot of that country out in western Queensland is really suited to sheep, it's not it's not suited to any other enterprise. So there's a great opportunity in Western Queensland for uh, Queenslanders now to get back into sheep. Uh, in South Australia, we had a, a dog fence that was uh, well over 100 years old. It had done a great job, but it was dilapidated. And um, yeah, through negotiation with both the federal and state governments, we were able to we were able to secure uh, 10 million from each government, and as industry, we put in five million. So. We've got a project going there at the moment where we're rebuilding 1,600 kilometres of new fence across the transverse of South Australia. There'll be still 550 kilometres of old fence, but that is in reasonable order. And we're even seeing now that pastorals are putting sheep into areas where they haven't been able to put sheep for years. So if we're getting, say, 1,000 dogs a year in South Australia every year, We're only spinning our wheels, we're not getting on top of the problem. But what we've been able to see over the last two years, yeah, I agree, due to drought, but because of our aerial baiting and uh, ground baiting programs and our trapping programs, we've really made inroads into dogs. And yeah, sure, there's still dogs there, but we're getting the dogs back to a manageable situation, but we can't afford to be reactive again. We've got to stay proactive and keep those programs going, so we virtually eliminate dogs inside the fence.
0: And a little bit about uh, your own business, Jeff. So you're um, you're farming at Roo. You've been there many years and uh, clearly had a great impact with with dogs. But tell us a bit about why you love growing wool and a bit about your
1: own property. Yeah, look, even since I was a little kid, I I loved wool. I uh, used to get a lot of pleasure when we'd go on you know, excursions, trips to Bendigo or Ballarat and you'd see the sheep out there and I thought, well, I'd love to do this one day. And I guess uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do it. Look, I see a great future for the wool industry. It's an industry that has had its ups and downs, but, you know, it, it's a great fibre and with the world the way it's going today, it's a renewable fibre. It's biodegradable and... You know it's just just a fiber of the future in my view so in terms of uh, your own property you've left uh, this
0: amazing legacy in terms of uh, your your work in wild dog control but also on a more local or regional level your Flinders Merino group have forged quite a unique um, pathway and partnership with uh, Polytechnic in Hong Kong tell us a bit about that because that's not something that everyone knows
1: about it was a really interesting. We, uh, uh, as Flinders Marino, we uh, uh, we did a trip to China and we we came back through Hong Kong. And Alex Slye was from AWI. was very good. Um, he introduced us to the Polytechnic University over there. And we noticed all those young students were um, using their designs, but none of them were using wool. So we decided when we came back that we, we create a scholarship and. Don't quote me on this, but I think that scholarship's been going for about 15 years, and AWI have also provided a scholarship. And when we've been back to Hong Kong and seen these students and seen the work that they're doing, we've noticed that they're all using wool because they're striving to get that scholarship. The scholarship, in our view, um, it's not costing us a lot of money, but it means a lot to them. It's something that they strive for. The other thing we do um, in conjunction with AWI, we bring out five six students every year, and um, we show them around the Flinders, and they're absolutely gobsmacked to to, to see what we're doing and, and um, uh, the way we operate. You know, in such a beautiful environment. And uh, what an amazing
0: difference from downtown Hong Kong to uh, Oruru. It must, yeah. uh, as, as you say, oh. it, it, it's a sort of a. It's, a, it's very symptomatic of the wool industry, isn't it? Because you've got two
1: completely different worlds that come together through the fibre. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, just a, a couple of points on that. We did a presentation uh, over there and um, we had a map of our area, the Flinders area, over a map of Hong Kong. <laughs> and uh, the, the student took its hand up and said, you know, uh, how many resorts have you got there? Um, how many people live there? And they couldn't believe that so few people actually lived in that area compared to what live in Hong Kong. So, yeah, look, it's a complete change of life for those kids when they come out, but it's something I, I believe that they, as they go through life, they never forget. Yeah, oh, what, a, what a wonderful
0: thing to do and uh, to, to continue with. And a, and your own wool-growing enterprise, Jeff. how's that travelling and a... It's been uh, some pretty tough years through there, but I understand that things are looking a little better now.
1: Yeah, look, uh, you know, we we've just come out of four years of drought and it's proper drought. Uh, It's probably accelerated by uh, kangaroo numbers. Um, The sad part about that is when the the kangaroo numbers uh, become uh, unworkable. You see a lot of kangaroos dying and emus dying, which is not very nice whereas with sheep you can actually do something with them. But yeah, look. Uh, over the last eighteen months, we've had some good rains, and the rains that we've had during November, I reckon. Uh, you know, you couldn't expect our country to look better at this time of the year. So, yeah, the numbers are down in the uh, northeast and northwest pastoral areas, but um, yeah, I think everybody can see a future now and be uh, going to be building up numbers again.
0: So speaking about the future, um, how do you feel about it from your own
1: wool-growing perspective uh, and the industry in general? Oh, look, I'm I'm really positive about the future. I think it's a great industry. You know, we've got some challenges. Labor's a big challenge, but it isn't a lot of industries. I still see the wool industry being there forever, really. It's got a great role to play around the world. As I said, it's a renewable fibre. It's a fibre that's ethically produced. And uh, you know, I think I think wool's always going to be there. Yeah, look, the market indicator might at the moment hovering around that 1300 or 1350. While it's manageable, yeah, we'd like to see it go up a couple of hundred cents or get up to around 1600, because costs, as you know, they're rising. But that's life, and uh, we've just got to run with it. So it's an industry that has a lot of. A lot
0: of different uh, aspects and those aspects are represented with representative bodies uh, there's no shortage of opinions in the wool industry it's 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 initially let's be honest it's hard to find unity and as former president of wool producers how do you feel
1: about that how do we is it important to have a unified front going forward well it, it's i think it's imperative to have a unified front you know to reach consensus on issues and to work things out around the table rather than uh, working them out through the media. You know, we've got to understand, though, that, uh, and this is the beauty of a merino sheep, is that, you know, you, you can grow merino sheep in five- and six-inch rainfall country in virtually semi arid or a, a desert area, but you can also grow merinos in 30-inch or 35-inch rainfall. So I guess where I'm coming from is that uh, p- opinions are going to vary as to what rainfall area you live in, And, and, uh, you know, the problems you might experience in in a a dry or an arid zone are a lot different than what you would in a a higher rainfall zone. So, yeah, once again, the only way you can sort that out is to get around the table and uh, reach consensus on on issues that come up. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, there's always going to be people that come out of left field and people that come out of right field. But uh, I think the trick is to find that middle ground, and as I said, I, I like that word consensus. You mightn't agree on everything, that's life, but if we can work together, we're, we're going to really progress the industry. So it sounds like you're quite optimistic about the future of wool. Oh, look, I am. Uh, why wouldn't I be? It's been, it's been good to, uh, for our business, our family, and uh, you know, the people I talk to, that they're confident about the industry. You know, we've, we've got to accept the challenges. We've got to work, we've got to work harder on our core uh, industry problems, such as shear and shed down training. We've got to progress on that. And also uh, feral animal control, wild dogs. They're, they're the two big threats to the wool industry, is, is lack of labour and, and wild dogs. So if we can uh, overcome those problems, I see a really bright future for the industry.
0: Now, uh, we're here in Adelaide, uh, you and I are both cricket fans, we, we met uh, yesterday to, to have a look at the cricket, but uh, it needs to be said that you are also a Melbourne Football Club supporter and have been so for a long time and long-suffering, <laughs> but it, it's only fair to say well done to Melbourne and what a wonderful premiership. And yesterday we handed you a, a Melbourne Fibre Football jumper, and uh, when we did that, you told us a little about an amazing story when you were a child and you're, um, and getting to know a, a club legend in, in Ron
1: Barassi. Tell us a bit yeah. about that. That was amazing. Look, you know, uh, from 1965 till this year, I've had grief as far as the Melbourne Football Club's concerned. It's been a long long road to get a premiership, but it was a wonderful, wonderful day when they got there. Yeah, when I was a uh, kid, things were a lot different in those days. Um, the, the game wasn't as professional uh, today. They didn't have the... Minders around. It was a was a lot more open, and um, yeah, when I was quite young, I'd wait outside uh, the Melbourne door where the players went in, and Ron Barazzi would give me his bag, and I'd I'd walk into the into the clubroom, into the change rooms with him, and uh, yeah, that was always a thrill.
0: <laughs> quite amazing. Yeah. Well. Jeff, thank you very much for uh, your time today. Thanks for your enormous input and direction for the wool industry over many years and uh, all the very best for the future. And it's been just very nice to catch up with you again.
1: Uh, Thanks, Marius. Pleasure.
0: Jeff Power, Ororoo Wool Grower, former Wool Producers Australia and Livestock SA President and recipient of the Wool Industry Medal. And for those non-AFL supporters who don't know who Ron Barassi is, well, he is to AFL what Jeff Power is to wild Dog Control. So I hope that you enjoyed that fireside chat. If you have someone you'd like to hear from and interviewed on The Yarn, just get in touch with us at AWI via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or even better, send us an email to the yarn at wool.com. We certainly love getting those emails. But for now, from me, Marius coming. Happy New Year and thanks for your company.